Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke with journalist Tanya Gold. So Tanya spoke about her long-running freelance career across a very broad range of British and American outlets. She spoke about her experience being at the centre of a furious Twitter storm earlier this year and about her also long-lasting but so far unfulfilled ambitions to write books. Enjoy. So I'm here with uh, Tanya Gold um, up in North London. She's briefly in town from a visit from her rural idyll. Tanya, thanks so much for finding time in what sounds like the middle of um, a pretty intense period of deadlines for yourself. Oh, yes. Um, uh, How many is it? I think I have five for Monday. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> We're on Friday afternoon, so thank you for, for sparing time. It's a pleasure. Um, I wanted to talk, first of all, about writing uh, about Britain for an American audience. So the, the pieces, particularly from Harper's, that you sent over. Um, we've had a number of people who kind of do this thing. So we've had Sam Knight and Ed Caesar, who write for The New Yorker. I do a bit of it myself. But, you know, what do you see as your kind of shtick, for want of a better word, when you're, when you're doing that? What is the, the thing that you're trying to do and you know the topics you're covering here the monarchy the the kind of labor anti-semitism stuff what is your what kind of you know what what is your thing when you're doing that kind of work do you think well I'm worried that my answer will be terribly disappointing um and we might touch on this again later but I don't actually think about who I'm writing for okay uh I write I have one column in the spectator my my food criticism column in which I write for a specific person which is my my husband's uncle okay uh, why him um, because he's uh, because I'm very conscious of value and 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 what's good. And uh, if I'm reviewing an expensive restaurant in London, I always imagine whether Uncle David would enjoy it and whether Uncle David would think it was it was worth the money. So that's one column I write for a very specific person in line. Does Uncle David know this? Uh, yes, he does. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. He's thrilled. Okay. Um, um, but with with my with my other writing, and, and this has got me into trouble, and we'll talk about talk about that later. Yeah. I write for myself. Okay. I write a paragraph and I think, is that a good paragraph? Do I think that's a good paragraph? Is it funny? Does it tell you anything? So I don't really think about an American. I don't really think about an American audience as as specific from a, from a British audience. I just try to write something that that I think is good. Um, at Harper's, obviously, uh, and uh, to a small extent at the New York Times, I, I I I cover things in Britain because I'm I'm on I'm on the ground here, yeah. and I write about the things that I'm interested in. I'm very inter- in, interested in. In, in great British institutions, you know, probably because my family are Jewish and 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 we've been here for a couple of hundred years. But I don't think you lose that that sense of uh, uh, well, I haven't lost that sense a sense of being an outsider because I was very much brought up close to the British establishment, and so I'm very interested in all these these gilded these gilded institutions. And 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 I, and I like to think that I can write for American audience about that with a certain amount of knowingness. And what kind of feedback do you get from, you know, both the editors you're working for, but from, you know, readers in America and things like that? Well, my first piece for Harper's Magazine was about very high-end restaurants in New York City, yeah. the restaurants of the super rich, the sort of places they go to in succession. Sure. Um, and I went over and, and I did four of them. And, and I, I thought they were loathsome. Okay. Um, and very overpriced and, and ridiculous and, and, and sort of a cult because you were, you were going somewhere and you were eating food that really wasn't very, very, very nice um, for, for a huge amount of money served sometimes by people who were really quite rude. Um, so I wrote this piece and it was called A Goose in a Dress and it was my first big piece uh, in America. And uh, lots of people liked it and some people really hated it. Okay. I got killed on Twitter okay. uh, by the woman who is now the food correspondent 
of the uh, of the New Yorker magazine, and and rather she live blogged reading it, her disgusted response to reading it. What's very funny is she she later admitted, though not in the context of this, that she had gone to Per Se once, which is the restaurant I I mostly hated, and 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 had a very bad experience there, but was too scared to say anything about it. Um, uh, because uh, I understand and luckily I've never had this at The Spectator because at The Spectator you can write whatever you want Mm. uh, and you don't pay for your meals and and the last thing on anyone's mind when you're writing a piece is what the restaurant PR thinks but I don't think it's the same in America. Hang on, you don't or you do pay for your meals? I don't. Okay, so who pays? Uh, Well, I think sometimes in America they might pay and if I don't know... with The Spectator, who's paying for the meal? Oh, the company pays. The Spectator pays. Right, the magazine pays. Yeah, the magazine pays. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't know whether they pay or not in America, but sure. I understand they're much more worried about what... They seem more respectful right. over there. Um, I think marketing maybe has quite a big hold there on, on some of the websites. Well, let's come back to that in a minute. Can we talk then about your, you know, your kind of own career um, in, you know, you, in journalism, your 20 years of this, and how it started and how it progressed and how it kind of moved to, to doing what you're doing now? Oh, I'd, I'd love to talk about that. Well, um, I started as a gossip columnist. Okay. Um, I worked at the Frame Hardcastle Diary at the Daily Mail, and I worked on the London's Diary uh, and the old Peterborough column at the Telegraph with lots of people who are exactly the same age, and we all drank far too much. Okay. Uh, and we had a wonderful time. And I wonder whether the silliness I developed that, I developed there, because the perfect diary story, someone once told me, is getting the Archbishop of Canterbury talking about his dog. It's. Uh, Why is that? Because it's funny. Okay. Because it's unexpected, because it's. Um, Cognitive dissonance. Okay. If you can get serious people talking about very silly things. Okay. Uh, or silly people talking about very serious things. How, how would you end up doing this kind of diary stuff? You were fresh out of university at that stage? Uh, yes. Uh, I did a history degree and uh, I did the ring round in the summer. You couldn't do that now. You couldn't get into a, into a newspaper just by ringing up and okay. asking. And I managed to get onto female at the Daily Mail. Okay. The Daily Mail's women's department. Okay. A very intense and funny place. Why is it? This oh. is what, sort of, we're talking sort of early 2000s here? Or? No, uh, 1998. Okay. 1998. Well, it was just, you know, I'm very fond of the time I spent at the Daily Mail. I worked there as a feature writer, and I'll talk about that in a bit, because I think maybe some readers will go, oh, you worked at the Daily Mail, and you didn't spend your whole time walking around in high dudgeon. And actually, I was in high dudgeon, and I did eventually leave. Right. Um, but I found it, as a, as a writer, uh, a fascinating place to contemplate. And, and, and what was fascinating about female is that they were writing about such, you know, silly things with such intensity okay. uh, and professionalism and often anger. <laughs> Could you give an example? Um, I can't really think of an, exa- of, a, of an example of when I was on female then because I wasn't, I wasn't on for very long, but I would just, you know, 15 hours a day of shouting to produce, you know, stuff about how much money the Duchess of Cornwall spent on clothes. Okay. Who were the shouters and who were the sort of shouters? Oh, the editors were the shouters. Right. Okay. Um, I think the culture's probably changed now, but there was yeah. a lot of shouting in that office. By the women as well? Uh, if they were senior enough, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I think, you know, we often have people, you know, we talk about people's progression through careers and, you know, with this kind of first job sort of thing, whatever whatever it is, there's it, it's quite easy to kind of look back and say, like, it was all glorious and fun. Like, was it actually doing the diary stuff? Or, you know, speaking with, you know, we, we try and have, you know, complete and radical honesty on this show. So, like, if you are, you know, it's 1998, one year out of university, is it actually fun being sent to a party to find out the Archbishop, or is it a bit grim? Well, the old, it's the old truth, isn't it? You know, what, what are you remembering? Are you remembering yeah. the job? Are you remembering the fact that you were 25 mm-hmm. and now you're 45? Um, well, I mean, it's complicated for me because I wasn't very well at the time, and this might come up later because, mm-hmm. in a way, you could say that my big break in, in my journalism career is when I started writing about my recovery from alcoholism. Okay. Uh, and I was a using alcoholic, and I was sick, and people 
bad things happened and people told lots of very funny stories about me, which are funny in retrospect. But I suppose the truth about being a diarist is I came from a very suburban, you know, bourgeois upbringing. And suddenly uh, you're being invited to all these these hallowed places in central London. You know, I'd be sent off to the Royal Opera House at 11 o'clock in the morning to do, you know, to interview an actor. And I think I realised as soon as I got onto the diary how magical the the potential for for how magical journalism could be in, in, in that it allows you to live in other lives, in other the people's lives. The passport element of it. Uh, yes, yeah. d- you know, to yeah. places and also, for me, far importantly, more importantly, f- to people. Sure. Um, so it's it's like, it's like a TARDIS. It's it's, it's like a, a magical machine that, that takes you to incredible places. And so with, you know, only as much as you're comfortable talking about here, but, with, you know, so with the the alcoholism and the writing, how did those two things overlap? Then? You said that your, that your break was writing about recovery? They didn't overlap so much then. They do overlap far more now. Okay. Um, well, you know, luckily I was only being, you know, I only ever had to write no more than 150 words. I mean, that was the maximum. Sure. And I, I, I would like to say that I think working on a diary, you know, is a great way to learn journalism. Right. You know, because, you know, if you're lucky, and I had Peter Mackay at Ephraim Hardcastle and Sebastian Shakespeare at the London's Diary, is they train you. You know, I, I, I think being asked to go in on your first day and, and, and write a thousand words or, or to be a columnist when you're in your early 20s is, you know, is very, very hard because yeah. you've only ever got one great column in you, I think, when you start. Okay. Um, so, you know, the work was easy, but I mean, I was very unwell. But yeah. when, I, when I wasn't in hospital, I always worked. Okay. And, you know, I suppose that, you know, you could say that the fact that I was a diarist made me worse, but, you know, because I was always at parties where there was alcohol available, but the truth is I think I would have found the alcohol anyway. Sure. You know, so when, it, when, to New York. when did you first write about recovery then? When, or, or write about alcoholism? And um, I stopped drinking. Uh, at what stage? Uh, in the room next door. My last drink was in 2002. Okay. Uh, and I stopped drinking, and uh, and it was a, it was a really bad time, I felt... The only, I, I mean, I don't want recovery, to, uh, alcoholism to sort of uh, take this interview hostage. Sure. Uh, but yeah. my writing is very, very important to my recovery. Um, is your recovery important to your writing? Hmm? Is it true the other way around as well? Writing has become a drug to me. Right. On which I'm absolutely dependent. And okay. if I don't write to a certain level, I really, really struggle. What do you think about the, the sort of broader, you know, literature of recovery? Thinking, you know, James Frey or Foster Wallace or, you know, things like that. Do you know why I haven't read them? Okay. I tried to read Foster Wallace once. I like his journalism very, very much. Yeah. But I suppose I don't want to read about other people's madness. I've got enough of my own. Sure. Okay. You know, reading about, I don't, I don't ever spend time with drinking alcoholics and I don't really want to read their their testimony it doesn't mean that I don't respect it and I don't love it but in it's what too I, close it's too close and what yeah. I look for in writing my favourite novelist by some margin is Hilary Mantel okay because of the perfection of her cadences and her sentences and right. her poise and her control so when I read for pleasure I am looking for that control I'm looking for that for that poise yeah um, so I, I don't want to read David Foster Wallace on his madness, though I loved the piece that Jonathan Franzen wrote about him. Sure, yeah, about the, um, the kind of difficulty. Because it had all that poison, it had all that control. And so, so you say, and again, I don't, I don't want to, you know, ask me anything you like. But, but on, so, so you say, it, when you, you stopped drinking in 2002, when do you, you, and then you write about this? Yes. When? Uh, I was very lucky, in a way, uh, very lucky. I stopped drinking in 2002. 
And I was kicking around the Daily Mail, um, writing Free Frame Hardcastle and doing a few features, which I'll tell you about in a minute because okay. I just thought they were great fun. And I wrote a piece for The Guardian uh, about uh, the Priory Hospital. Okay. Uh, and I was very lucky to have been allowed to go into the, the Priory Hospital, though actually it didn't make me better. Uh, and I had to go into rehab again. So I was in the Priory in 1999. So I wrote a piece for The Guardian. Uh, actually, I'm wrong. I was... I was writing for The Guardian at that point uh, on an informal basis, but I was still very young, 2004. And uh, I wrote a piece about the Priory. And uh, I had a very good friend who was a journalist, and uh, he he was more uh, experienced than I am. And I've always thought that everyone has a great piece in them professional writer or not you just need someone to pull the truth out of you the yeah. writing is easy it's 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 how far will you go to tell the truth okay. and he said to me when did you realize you were an alcoholic and the first thing that popped into my head was i knew i was an alcoholic the day i mounted brian sewell which was an allusion to a terrible day at the evening standard which was probably my sort of nadir um brian at, sewell the art critic yes okay. i was blind drunk on vodka at about 11 o'clock in the morning i sat on brian sewell's lap okay and then for, for readers who are not, or listeners who are not familiar with him, could you paint a brief word picture of Brian Sewell? Uh, Brian Sewell was the art critic of the Evening right. Standard and a very lovely and interesting gay man. Okay. Um, so you could call it performance art, and they, they called me an ambulance, and uh, I was taken away, and you know I had to, and I, do, I did stop drinking forever very shortly after that. So, um, so I said, and that was the first line of my piece. I knew I was an alcoholic the day I mounted Brian Sewell. When I said that everyone's got one great piece in them, at that time in my life, that was mine. You know, It was right. something I really, really knew about. So I wrote a piece um, about about the Priory and about alcoholism, and they put it on the cover of G2, and it was on the banner above the title in the old Guardian, the big Guardian, and it said, I knew I was an alcoholic the day I mounted Brian Sewell. Yeah. And that was my Break. first... Yeah, I suppose it was my... Okay. Quite literally, I'm sure there's a pun in there. I mean, I, I know, you know, David Carr, the former New York Times I mean, this critic who wrote his book about his um, drug addiction, he said that, you know, there was this, there's this sort of narrative that you, you know, you get clean, you pull yourself together. At some period after that, you write about it. But he said, like, he was pitching his recovery story while he was, like, still in rehab and stuff like that. You know, that for him, it was much, you know, he, he, and he produces in that his, like, letters to editors of him trying to sell his sort of redemptive narrative while he was, like, still really in the thick of that. Do you think there is a, a tendency or a kind of a pressure from editors or from the way that publishing works to, like, frame something in a neater teleology? in those contexts and maybe the lived experience of it is. Well, you mean editors are looking for those kind of Yeah, like of the redemption stories. story. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's this constant, this constant pressure as, as journalism becomes, you know, more nonsensical because, you know, good journalism is expensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, to get people to mine their own trauma. Sure. Um, but it was good for me to write that piece and I, I wanted to write that piece because, I don't know if you know this, but possibly the defining psychological uh, character trait of alcoholism is shame. Right. And I was so ashamed of what had happened to me and I was so ashamed of what I'd done and because I didn't know then, 20 years ago, that it wasn't really my fault. Yeah. Um, that it's that, that, that to write about it and write about it, you know, we're back to poise, you know, and, and, and forming yourself within sentences. Uh, I found it, if I could write a, a funny and good piece, if I could write something worthy, then, you know, that I would begin to forgive myself. And, and that reminds me of... Of, of a line that Howard Jacobson, who is, is another writer I absolutely adore. I adore his novels and I adore his journalism. Um, and he said, I write to make me me again. Okay. And, you know, I, I feel the same way. And I don't know if the me that I write is the real me, rather, I think it's it's the me I want to be. It's a person yeah. who's certain and sure and poised and knows what to say and doesn't just sort of gabble or cry. 
Were you ever concerned? I mean, there's such a history of writers and alcohol, right? If sites, you know, it is the if if one looks at you know the lineage. Were you ever concerned of like if you're trying to produce something that's stylistically so poised, so tight, you know, that there is a risk of cliche as well? in writing about one's experience with drink. So many people have done it before. Well, I would say ignorance is bliss now because I haven't read any of them. Okay, sure. So what then... On I mean, who are they? God, I think... I mean, you know, it's... Uh, I'm trying to think, who was the... the um, J.G. Ballard? You know, a lot of... Like, there's a lot of... There's a literature of, you know, Kingsley Amos, people like that. Like, I think that there is a vein of it. Um, but I'm also conscious... If you're doing that in 2004, it's like... That is before the advent of the personal essay industrial complex, right? It's before... Great phrase. Yeah, but before that stuff, you know, kind of exists. Do you think it would... Do you think that was to your advantage, that there was less kind of confessional writing in the ecosystem at that I mean, stage? I can't say. I mean, I think I'm quite good at it because I have no boundaries. You yeah. know, I have to remind myself to have boundaries. I mean, I've written pieces that I hope no one ever finds. Sure. Um... Yes, and it's very easy for the lazy journalist or the poor journalist, you know, to make a whole career, but it never ends happily. I mean, the great example, of course, is Liz Jones, you know, who... Could you explain? I, I'm not familiar with... Oh, Liz uh, Jones writes the back page of the Mail on Sunday magazine, right. and her modus operandi is to mine her own life for her trauma in in such, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, so much so that you that I imagine, and I say this with compassion and with respect, because I know Liz and I like her and I think she's a very good writer, mm. um, that you wonder if she's doing things just to have things, you know, to, to write copy. about. You know, yeah. she's not, she didn't create the column, the, col- the column is creating her. Yeah. And it's very easy to do that, and it's particularly easy to do that if you're a woman, because I yeah. would like to say that some newsrooms are still so gendered. And when I was yeah. starting, they really were. Uh, and they still are. And there are still certain newspapers where if you're a woman, you'll be on this section. And the men are writing about politics and the women are writing about fashion and sex and sure. and marriage. Yeah. Um, so it's easy to do that. And I think there were times at the beginning of my career when I did fall too much into that trap. And I wrote a lot about uh, being overweight and um, and so on and so forth. But, you know, I'm do not happy. Do you regret happy. doing that? Is it, what's the point of regretting anything? Right. I mean, there are pieces I'm ashamed of, of course. Sure. You know, but you can't write... Pff, how many words a year do you have to write, you know, to make a... To pay, you know, you can't write 200,000 words a year without being ashamed of some of them. Do you write 200,000 words a year? No. Okay. <laughs> I probably write 100,000 words okay. a year. So what was your progression then? You have this this big piece in 2004 in The Guardian. Yes, how does and then your, I worked for The Guardian. Career, okay, on staff? Uh, no, I've okay. never been on staff. Okay. And I, I never stay anywhere. It's like a compulsion. I don't really want to go into that because I don't really want to understand it. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't really understand it. And I don't really want to sort of bore the, raw, the readers with it because it's really not relevant. But I've never... Uh, I've been on contract. So I was at The Guardian. I was having a lot of fun at G2 under Ian Katz. As a features writer. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was really jolly, like, you know, road testing roller coasters and doing, you know, lots of silly stuff, but some really serious stuff as well. I went to Israel to um, to interview um, the children of Nazis who converted to Orthodox Judaism. Okay. Um, and that will always be the kind of journalism I like to do best. You know, you travel a long way and you, you learn stuff and you meet people and you mind their lives if they'll let you. But journalism like that is expensive. Sure. And, you know, me and my trauma is cheap. Right. Okay. So, so the Guardian under cats, and then what's your read after that? God, it's, you know, I'm struggling to remember. Because I have worked literally everywhere. Okay. Uh, I was at the Telegraph for a bit. I covered the 2010 election. On uh, contract? Or what was, the, what was your no, contract? Well, well, everything informal. Right. Always. Okay. 
Um, I was at the Sunday Times magazine yeah. for about four years, where it's some stuff um, I was pretty proud of. Yeah. Uh, I did a profile of Russell Brand that I, I was proud of. And Why I, so? Why particular? Because I, cause I get him. And I followed him around for months, and I went to his salon uh, where he, uh, you know, because Russell is an alcoholic, yeah. like I am, uh, on the record. And at the time, you may remember, he was engaged in uh, just before the election, where he endorsed, reluctantly endorsed Ed Miliband. 2015, this is not 2010, right? Yeah, that was yeah, 2015. Yeah, yeah. Uh, God, was it really that, that recently? Uh, and and was, he was yeah, yeah. politically interesting at that point. Yeah. Uh, and I, w- I was interested in whether he said it, had anything interesting to say about populism. And so I went to various salons he gave where he would sit and he would perform. Uh, and, you know, you say there are so many, you could say there are a lot of narcissists around at the moment. It seems to be a very fashionable illness. You yeah. know, there's one in the White House. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, yeah. There'll probably be, you could argue, there's one in, uh, in Downing Street. And he just seems to me, a, you know, a very, a very interesting man and, and extremely unhappy. Um, and in terms of, you know, that, we're, we're, this is kind of on the Anglo-American journalistic difference, but, you know, that, that kind of following somewhere around for months, spending time, they're very much in the American magazine writing tradition. Did you find, you know, that as opposed to the sort of British, like, sit down, features writing thing, if you sit down, you have lunch with someone, you knock out 1,500 words, did you find yourself being more attracted to doing that kind of, more ambitious, more ambitious. Oh, God, the American model every time. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just the dream. And, I mean, I was very lucky that the Sunday Times, you know, were, were willing to fund that. Yeah. Uh, and Harper's too. Yeah. Uh, it's, it absolutely produces the richest, the richest kind of journalism. I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't a value, because uh, I completely forgot that I was a columnist at The Guardian for four years when okay. we were talking uh, for the op-ed pages. I'm not saying that there isn't a richness to the three-hour to the knocked out three hour the uh, three hour column you know there's there's an intensity to it, sure. and, it and if you get it right um, you know it can be a wonderful thing I mean Marine Hyde does it three times a week yeah um, but for me nothing nothing is better than the long slow cruel around a subject uh, and the most recent example I have of that is when I did a piece about anti-semitism in the Labour Party which appeared in Harper's uh, in October of last year and I spent ooh, six months on that yeah. piece. I'd like to talk about that just just in a moment, but we always ask on the podcast about money. And with the, with this kind of peripatetic freelance existence, have you been able to make a living doing that? Yeah, I make a living. I have to work yeah. very hard, uh, but I make a living. Yeah. And has that always? How has the financial side of it changed over the past? You know, two oh, decades. Well, in you know, fifteen years ago, and even ten years ago, you could, if you were lucky, pick up a three-figure contract. Right. I mean, there'd be a downside to that in that they own you. And if they own you, they own you. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's why I've never stayed anywhere. Because sure. I don't want to be owned. Uh, but that never, that almost never happens anymore. And I think when this generation of very highly paid journalists goes, yeah. there, there won't be others. I mean, I dread to think what what younger people are on. And with... Again, just as a before we go into American stuff, you know, you mentioned the mail as an environment and things. Could you talk a bit more about that? You know, it's a place that arises that, that creates very strong emotions, both in you know, in terms of readers and and things like that. What was your experience of being within the belly of the beast? Well, I know? feel the urge, and, and actually, your you know, the way you phrase that question makes made, made, made me think of it made me think of it again. I, I immediately feel the urge, you know, to, to explain why I was at the Daily Mail. When yeah. the truth is, you know, I'm a feature writer. You yeah. know, I'm not really a columnist. I'm a feature writer. And so when I see somebody 
you know, no matter what they're saying, all I ever want to say is, tell me more. Okay. You know, and I think the, the rushed judgment in journalism has done a lot of damage. You know, I'm pretty tired of having people shout at me about things that I already know. And if I'm going to read a piece about Paul Dacre, I don't really want to read in a thousand word piece about Paul Dacre. And as far as I'm aware, this piece has probably never been done. Uh, I don't want to read in a thousand word piece on all the reasons why you think Paul Dacre is, is evil. You know, I could write one of those for myself. You know, I just think to be a feature writer it is essential to be quite emotionally porous and to be able to see the world from their point of view. Right. Or you can't understand them. So my experience of being at the Daily Mail in the when I in my early thirties, although you know I never shared their politics, and there have, there have been times when I think they have really gone too far. Mm. I mean, really, uh, and I'd be happy, you know, to talk about the poisoning of political discourse and the way that things have become so polarized. I think I think the blaming of that man who burnt his children to death for a bigger house, blaming it on the welfare state. I mean, I thought that was absolutely disgraceful. Sure, but. Uh, I like to say sometimes all newspapers are the same. And they're not all the same, but they are all very, very similar. Why is that? Why are all newspapers the same? Maybe I'm just very, very cynical. But, you know, liberal newspapers are not the Elysium. In terms of their working practices internally? Yeah. yeah. I don't really want to say too much about that. Okay. Well, can we talk about Labour anti-Semitism? Oh, no, I was just going to tell you about the mail. Okay. Very quickly. I was going to say the experience... You were going to ask the question. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, the experience okay. of um, of working in the Daily Mail uh, in Kensington High Street and that electric, powerful, you know, the, the engine of a powerful, famous newspaper and, you know, a huge broad vista and, and, and Paul over his proofs, you know, shouting at people in the office till 11 o'clock at night. I just thought it was incredibly exciting. Right. Um, and I, I left after six months when I realised that they really were going to try and bend me to their politics and I couldn't okay. have that. Okay, okay. Um, but I'm really glad I did it. Sure. In another message from our sponsor, we're giving top tips from tutors at the Faber Academy Creative Writing School on what makes a strong application. The school's flagship writing a novel course is running again from January to June 2020, and the application requires both a 1,000-word writing sample and a letter. Sabrina Broadbent, who teaches on the daytime version of the course, is looking for originality and determination. In the writing sample, Sabrina says, I'm on the lookout for latent signs of that rare thing, an original voice, which is hard to define yet unmistakable when you read it. It often emerges out of risk, non-conformity and difference. Richard Skinner, who set up the programme back in 2009 and is teaching on the evening version of the next course, is also looking for promise in both a potential student's writing and their ability to contribute to the group. Of course we're looking for good writing, he says, but as long as a less polished piece has that certain something in it, that thing we're all looking for but can't name, then we're interested. Applications close for this iteration of the course on the 31st of December 2019. For more information, go to faberacademy.co.uk. The course is available in two forms, an evening programme involving one evening class per week and one Saturday per month, alongside a daytime variant which is one morning per week plus an afternoon once per month. Always Take Notes listeners receive a £250 discount by using the code ALWAYSTAKENOTES2019. Can we talk about that Harper's piece then, the anti Oh, yes, yes, yes. So how was that your, how did you first, you'd done this piece for them about this restaurant, but how, yeah, how did this idea, was it yours or did they come to you? It was my idea. I went to um, the Momentum Conference, uh, the World Transport in 2016, and I saw for the first time what I consider to be uh, anti-Semitism in public. Yeah. Um, And I was 
fascinated and a bit These are, I mean, particularly the things you quote in the piece, right? These lines frightened. of, you know, the woman talking about a lot of kind of moral equivalency and things like that. You know, these was it. You you went to the conference before you had the commission. Yes, I was writing a piece for uh, the New Statesman about uh, momentum, and I was very gentle and kind and reasonable, and I tried to see the world from their point of view. And I remember saying, if you agree with them, they're the sweetest people in the world, and if you don't agree with them, you're the devil. Right. And I I think that that the truth of that statement has been borne out. Sure. Yeah. So what, how did you report, go about reporting the story? Well, um, I went to a lot of events. I went yeah. to the Enough is Enough rally, and I went to the House of Commons to sit in the public gallery when Luciana Berger did her testimony yeah. about anti-Semitism and Labour and the front bench, because you have to go in public. You, you, ha- sorry, you have to go in person, you know, because you learn so much from the body language. I mean, everything, sure. I, mean I could tell so much from how Corbyn and Abbott... Uh, felt about it from just from their body language they were speaking I mean they didn't look at her they didn't turn around they sat there with their arms crossed I right. had this fantasy because I am drawn to the left and I would love it if the leader of the Labour Party wasn't you know awful he could have just gone and said sorry <laughs> um, but he was uh, so I went to lots of events yeah. and um, I spent a lot of time with Jewish people who uh, who uh, love Corbyn yeah and who spend a lot of time uh, saying that uh, the anti-Semitism uh, allegations are all manufactured yeah. um, uh, by Tories, uh, by Norman Tebbit, uh, you know, for profit. And the um, and I spent a lot of time with them. Uh, and actually, I got nothing out of that, actually, because I always think if I spend that much time, I was spending time with people like Jackie Walker and Tony Greenstein. I always think I'll get someone, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't with them. I had theories, but they couldn't. They couldn't uh, vocalise for them for me, so I couldn't use them. Uh, so they remain for me a bit of a mystery. A bit of a and what was the experience of you know the editing and bringing this piece together? It's being published by a magazine in New York, a city that is a mm. third Jewish. You know, you know, reporting from a country where, as you say, the Jewish population is two hundred sixty thousand. That the demographic is very different. How did the Americans that you were working for? Kind of perceive this um well they were great actually because my first piece was so uh, was shocked it was shocked in tone it was stilted it was unusable your first draft you're my first draft yeah, yes yeah. so i had to thank you i had to rewrite it um and actually i was very touched by this um the uh, the publisher of harper's a guy called um rick MacArthur, came to london and we went out for dinner i said where have you been today and he said oh, i went up to golders green okay you know i wanted to see for myself yeah um but they they didn't they don't I mean, I don't know if the experience of other writers, but usually I just send in my copy and they say yes or no. Sure. And they, they, they rewrite it. I mean, I was, I was very glad to write it because I do believe that there's, um, you know, I'm sick of saying this politely. I think it's abs- absolutely an infection. And just before you arrived, I was watching a video of a Jewish man and his small Jewish sons being abused on the London Underground before you came because it is an obsession of mine now. Uh, but... It, I'm glad. I'm glad to write about it. You know, bearing witness. That's what we do. Yeah. Sometimes I know journalists who become terribly, terribly upset. You know, when they see things happening they don't like, and you say, you know, you're bearing witness. That's your job. What was the reaction when the piece came out? Uh, well, it wasn't. I mean, it was reasonably muted. Um, you know, my Jewish people loved it, and most other people ignored it. Oh, I remember that the uh, Jewish Voice for Labour were very, very angry with me, and they told me that I was an anti-Semite. Okay. Uh, but you know, they're not subscribers. Sure. Do you think the fact that it, the, the the blunt kind of blunt reality of a piece sitting in an American magazine behind a paywall sort of changed the the subsequent 
reaction or the kind of Twitter discourse or things like that? Well, I, I've never really been um, slammed for this on Twitter. I mean, I had a, a long piece in The Spectator on this very subject two yeah. weeks ago, and I, I get no traction. I think, I think they just don't... I think I'm not important enough for them. Okay. And that's fine by me. I mean, they can troll me if they want to. But. On, the, on this whole Twitter thing, can we, can we come to the, the sort of Telegraph mannequin yeah, yeah, sure. story this year? So can you, you kind of give the context of that, of what... Yes, um, I was writing a piece Sunday for Monday for the Telegraph op-ed page. Sunday for Monday being they asked you on Sunday to write it for Monday. Yeah, you write it on Sunday and then it you, runs. So you get the commission on Sunday? Yes. Okay, right. Um, bit of a graveyard slot Sunday for Monday, but okay. never mind that. Uh, so I was looking for ideas and I saw that Nike, uh, the multinational company which only a couple of days ago was exposed as um, uh, uh, abusing its its female athletes in its facility, Um, uh, had developed this, uh, I guess it would be a size 24 mannequin for their shop. So it was a size 24 exercise clothes. And I'm a recovering alcoholic and I've been fat almost my whole adult life. And I was looking at that and I was thinking, you know, body positivism. Yeah, it's great in theory, but at the end of the day, you're still, you know, going to die young and I'm not sure I I said I thought it was cynical I said I thought that it was an extremely uh, cynical move um, maybe a little bit to make women think that just because they were wearing exercise clothes their bodies wouldn't kill them or their compulsive eating wouldn't kill them and actually I I would definitely write that piece differently now Um, how so? Well, I, I actually wrote, you know, journalism. <laughs> I actually, um, about two months later, I wrote, I wrote a piece uh, saying that I would do it differently. Um, but let me tell you what happened first, yeah. which is um, it got picked up and I had my first real Twitter storm. And uh, people were very, very angry with me because they thought that I was being very, very cruel to people who weren't well, to women who don't like themselves, to people who are overweight. And I was really upset by this for various reasons. The first reason is that I've been writing about feminism for years, and I have been attacking the fashion industry for years for this ideal. And the other reason I was upset because was because it became so personal so quickly. Um, sexual threats, requests for my death, requests for my child's death. Um, and even more that, it's, and I'm glad it happened because it taught me so much. I don't think a Twitter storm would bother me now. And I don't really, I just think if someone does something you perceive to be evil and you respond to it by trying to annihilate their reputation and longing to annihilate who they are, I kind of think you've lost the argument. And I wrote a piece and I said I knew that they were angry but I didn't really think it was about me. I thought it was about everyone who'd ever hurt them, including themselves. What were the the mechanics of the storm? I mean, looking at it in the, in the kind of most analytical manner, what caused it to get such traction on social media? Was it shared by a particular influential person? Uh, yes, what? it was. It was shared by a couple of people with more than a million followers. Okay. And there are people with particular interest groups. Yeah. Uh, there are particular interest groups on Twitter, so it was all picked up by... Um, the, the fat acceptance movement or the body, body positive movement right. and I just and again what was the timeline of the storm I mean I think Alistair Campbell once said that if you can ride a scandal for 
seven days. Or it whatever. lasted three days. Okay. So and what? Yeah. Could you could you describe you know in meteorological terms how did the storm begin? When did it peak? You know what was the peace came out at eleven in the morning. Or no, well, I started noticing it was online at eleven, and then it got bad. And by about three o'clock, it was bad, and then it hit America. Uh, when America woke up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then it got really bad. Yeah. Uh, and where were you? I was at my home in Cornwall. Okay. And it's an extraordinary thing, actually. And I said this in the piece, I began to hate my own name. You doubt everything about yourself. Oh, yes, and one thing I did want to say about this piece, because I think I didn't actually get there because I was rambling so much, is I do think that I spoke about the mannequin with self-hatred. Because as I've said, I've been overweight my whole life. And and I did, I did speak about her with hatred. And that was my mistake. The other points I stand by. Okay. And I would like to remind everybody that she is still actually a mannequin. Sure. I insulted a doll and then yeah. I became an avatar in my turn uh, which is probably a suitable yeah you were sort of right became an ob- you were sort of objectified by the mob yeah I was objectified and I became a person that I didn't recognize so how and again just you know for the, the sheer mechanics of it so when you're in the middle of that what happens you're getting like 90 notifications a second what's, what's I turned my of... notifications off but I didn't okay. know how to turn off private messages and I got some terrible private messages and were your messages open to yeah. like the public I didn't know how to turn them off okay so I was getting and my poor husband just didn't know what to do because you know he he's from the 18th century yeah uh, but I had friends calling me and um, I mean I think it melded into my alcoholism actually because I said this in the piece uh, that to be an alcoholic for me is to have the voice of the assassin in your brain. Right. You know, there's a reason why people drink themselves to death. Sure. It's not like Peter Hitchens says because they think it's fun. Yeah. You know, it's the voice of the assassin in your head, the person inside you that wants to kill you. And the person who recovers from alcoholic from alcoholism is the person who succeeds a day at a time in repressing that voice to a certain extent. You can never annihilate it, but you learn there are various ways to repress it. And it really felt for me, it was one of the worst days of my life. I felt like that voice had, had come out into the world and had become alive and had a million voices. Uh, and I was sorry that I hurt them. Um, Did you... I'm feel in any way now. you could just close the laptop, go for a walk on the beach. I mean, I think I think that, I didn't really want to. I mean, the th- you know, you know, Gay Talese got caught in a Twitter storm without noticing. Do you know this story? That he he's, he made some comment that was pounced upon, and because he didn't have a smartphone, he was you know he was you know trending on Twitter with hatred and vitriol for a day, and, and he didn't know this happened. And you know, did you ever feel that th- that this existed in an extremely real way? in one dimension, but that was the dimension you could step out of, or do you think those boundaries no longer exist? I'm sure that's true. And I was about, I was ashamed of the original answer I began to give you, but you know, you say you want full disclosure. Always. I didn't want to, I didn't want to. I couldn't look away. And also okay. don't forget there's a terrible self-importance to unhappiness. Right, you okay. Know, all alcoholics know that. I, you know, something was happening to me. And then I went to Scotland with Rolls-Royce because I used to uh, review cars for Vogue. And I turned on the radio and they were talking about me. Okay. I was in the South China Morning Post. Okay. I was in the Irish Times. I was, <laughs> yeah, I was called an elitist in the Irish Times. Okay. How much were you paid for the Telegraph piece? Not very much. Come on, you've got to say. I'm not talking about money. How much are you going to pay me for this blog? We don't pay you for this. Oh, you're talking about, okay, how much but, are you being paid for your Harper's piece? Uh, I am being paid a dollar a word. For oh, excellent. It. Yeah. Now you have to tell us how much. 300 pounds. Okay. So... For 300 quid, knocked out on a Saturday. Sunday. Sunday. Your world g- g- falls to pieces on Monday. 
it's over by Thursday, or what's the what's the time? Over by Thursday, but I couldn't. But the I couldn't write properly for about three months. Okay. I lost my voice. Okay. And how did you get through that? You wait. Things get better, don't they? You know, I can't laugh about it now. It just seems so silly. You know, lots of people who have never met me took great exception to thirty words I wrote. What is the? You know, this is what six months ago now that it happened. Mm. What, if any? enduring effects that experience had on your career or on your you know it's made me braver okay and in terms of I've had real real reservations because when I was working at the Guardian as a columnist I was a you know fully paid up member of the immaculate social democracy yeah angels and it's made me braver it's made me more willing to say what I really think and I've been watching what's happening to the left for a long time you know partly because of the anti-semitism I'm Jewish I can't nourish and I don't want to yeah but I think it's made me I think it's made me harder it's made me more willing to go my own way say what I really think and in terms of you know getting work and everything like that what's been the impact on that no problem really yeah I mean I thought it might be but it wasn't is there that the thing about not being able to look away is that because because you're the center of this is there in some way that you know all journalists want to be the center of attention, you want your stuff to be read, that there, there is some complicated and difficult crossover between what's desire as a writer to have your work it had nothing made. To, it had nothing to do with the writing. Okay. It, 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 my not being able to look away had nothing to do with the writing. Okay. It was more the horror, you know. I mean, I'd, I would love to know how other people feel about this. I mean, certain people can't stop getting into Twitter storms. Yeah. And, you know, I'm hoping this will be my only one. And I'm worried when that the, I sound the... too contrite because I'm not. I think they behaved appallingly. Right. You, you don't send people messages telling them that you wish they were dead because they wrote something you don't like. Were these from... That's madness. Were these from men or from women? What was the uh, sort of spread of That the... was from a man. I got a lot of messages from women saying they wanted to exercise and sit on my face. And I just think, you know, how can you expect me to say to take what you're saying seriously yeah. if that's your response? And basically, on that day, I ceased to take to take Twitter seriously. I, and also, some of them were obviously just enjoying it. You okay. know, the, the buzz of virtue. Um, who was it? Who's the guy who writes about all this stuff? Uh, John, uh, John Ronson. Ronson. Yeah. yeah. Um, he wrote that it's um, it's about security. It's about gathering. That if you're all united in condemnation of another person, you are not yeah. only good, but you belong. Yeah, yeah, and that made me feel a great deal better. But basically, I can't take it seriously anymore. And you know, I watch people, and and things are getting so bad in Labour. And yesterday, everyone was having, you know, the things they were saying about Rachel Riley. And you know, I just don't take it seriously anymore. I what did she do? I saw she was. I saw, I saw she was training on Twitter. What had she done? Oh, she um, she superimposed a message. I can't remember exactly what it said. Something to do with, you know, Jeremy Corbyn being racist towards Jews onto a photograph of him. And the message was superimposed onto the spot where he had a placard protesting right. um, uh, against apartheid. And this has turned into, um, you know, Rachel Riley is um, Rachel Riley is erasing the experience of these people. I see. And okay. a lot of talk about her being blonde and blue-eyed and absolutely, well, very little talk about the fact that she's an actually a Jewish woman who is fighting against what I believe to be absolutely catastrophic outbreak of, of, of Jew hatred in this country. And so with the storm... And those would be the same people who would disapprove of what I wrote. Right. So with the storm, with the, the calm... You're when, very interested in this storm. Well, I think we'll call this the last storm question. Okay. But when... 
does the car, when does the calm return? Just in the timeline. It breaks out on day one, it peaks day two. Two, uh, Peaks day two, uh, people who have been asleep uh, learn about it on on day three, and then it's over. Yeah. And then it's just over, and you just feel... And presumably there's another one about someone else on another corner of Twitter by that stage. Yeah. Can we talk about other... We'll we'll leave the storm. But your, your kind of broader writing ambitions do you want to write books have you you know where do you sit with, with i say i want to write books but if i wanted to write a book i might have written a book by now okay i want to write a book about alcoholism okay adding to your enormous, <laughs> your enormous so why have i don't know i'm a bit scared i'm scared that it won't be good enough there's always something else to do i'm a workaholic you know i when i get a commission i don't ask myself do I want to do this? I ask myself, you know, can I not do it? This so this hypothetical book that you haven't written, what would it be? My what unwritten book? book. Yeah, what would it be? My unwritten book. Um, I don't think we should talk about the unwritten book. It doesn't exist. Peter Mackay from That's the Mail. That's precisely why we should talk about it. His definition, his definition of a story, his definition of a non-story is something that hasn't happened. Right. <laughs> if it hasn't happened, it's not a story. This isn't the Mail anymore. <laughs> I want to hear about your unwritten He's book. He's a very good journalist, Peter Mackay. It's fine. But, no, uh, genuinely. But, you, you know, you clearly, you know, you're fascinated in the stylistic properties of writing. You know, you're, you're writing at a very high level. You have the experience with the subject. What, what, do you, what is blocking you on that project, do you think? I think I'm scared it won't be perfect. And if it isn't perfect, and of course it won't be perfect. Yeah. I'll hate myself because writing is how I form myself. But isn't perfection the enemy of the good? Without question. Yeah. But I think I'd rather have it shining in my imagination of the piece of perfection that it is in my head but could never be in life. But I think I was once told by a theatre director that, you know, you start with a vision and you end with a compromise, right? And at some point, you know, that, that shining city of infinite possibility has to be, like, brought down to earth, you know, trussed up have the edges shown off and, and something has to be I mean it, again you know it, you don't have to answer this but what would it be a memoir would it be a reported book what um, would it be? I think it would be a memoir but what I would try to do is try and give it a wider meaning you know just just sure. beyond my life I miss the 90s I'd like to write about the 90s okay well, in how so what, what about them I was young right the world na- the road narrows as you get older I think I'm older than you I'm almost 46 how old are you uh, 34 yeah I'm much older than yeah, you. Yeah. The road narrows. But I, I mean, I was, you know, I'm old enough. It's a man thing, you know. I think men do write their books. I wonder if more, if men write their books and some women's books remain unwritten. I think, lo- but I think, I, I'm not sure it's gender. I think huge numbers of people's books remain unwritten. And I think the act of writing books is that act by hook or by crook of going through feelings of terror and inadequacy that one thinks unique to oneself, but actually universal to everyone who's ever tried. And that you have to, you know, the thing is not, is realising, in my experience, that everyone feels like that. And it's just about getting through that. So when I have a clear day to write my book, as I've had, and I've had enough sleep to write my book so I can't blame tiredness, and I sit down in front of the computer, and this vast abyss of nausea that even has a colour opens up just underneath my diaphragm. Okay. That's normal. Well, that's your first sentence. Really? I, I don't know. I, I just find it, you know, do you, would you like to write books? 
I really want to write this book. I've been obsessed by this book. I first decided to be a writer when I was 12 years old. I remember very clearly it was an autumn evening. It was my school in Kingston-upon-Thames, and they had very wide windowsills with very big old-fashioned radiators, and I sat I sat on the windowsill. I could fit on the windowsill there, and I had this big pad of school paper, and I had a pen, and I remember looking down at this piece of paper and thinking, my God, I can write whatever I want. I can write my own story. Yeah. And I always wanted to be a writer. And you are. I am a writer. Can we talk about Sometimes Cor- I'm a very bad writer, Can we talk about <laughs> but I do have something to say about that. So I think the line between good writing and bad writing is much thinner than you might imagine. Okay. But do you think, that going back to the, the point, you think that men write their books and women don't? I don't know. I just said that. I could get another twist storm for that. I have no that idea. That is true. I don't know. Don't worry. Don't we'll, be in it, we'll be in it together this time, Tanya. It's okay. What? We'll be in it together this time. Um, I have no idea if that is true. <laughs> I haven't written a book you've written a book from the sample in this room that is objectively true fair enough uh, Cornwall why did Cornwall. you leave the great metropolis I left the great metropolis because I married a man from Wiltshire who couldn't possibly that doesn't explain why you moved to Cornwall it, he couldn't live in a village and uh, he, he had to live he had to live in the countryside or hang on he couldn't live in a village he- sorry he couldn't live in London okay he was sad in London okay he looked sad all the time okay like a dog is sad okay uh, so we had to move to the country and we looked at the home counties and I just thought I was, I just knew without question that I would start drinking again uh, if we moved <laughs> to the home counties. And, you know, you meet what, because like, of the sort of John Cheever-esque dynamics? I can't of... breathe there. I okay. need drama. And also, you know, you end up in an arms race with other people who fled from London, like the school gates, a sort of social arms race that, you know, you don't even <laughs> want to win. Uh, and I've been traveling, to, to, I've been going to Cornwall since I was a child. Uh, West Cornwall. Okay. You know, the end of the end. And I... Real Cornwall? Well... This isn't like St Ives and Rock and stuff like that. Well, I'm quite near St Ives, but I never go there. I can't park. I go to the dentist in St Ives. That's it. The dentist is the only rich person I know in Cornwall. He's the only person I know who sends his children to private school, which is the worst school. It's not the worst school in Cornwall. It's not a very good school. Um, So we moved to Cornwall because I like the drama. So we've lived there for two and a half years. And also my son. I didn't want to bring up uh, my son in London because by accident I bought a flat and nobody told me that this flat was on the street, which is actually, it's Queen's Crescent in Camden Town. And it's at, it's on the boundary of two and possibly three gang areas. Okay. And there were, it was murder town. There were murders. You mean there's no postcode violence in Cornwall? All the time. Oh, there is, but you kind of know your neighbours. Basically, I wanted to bring my son up in the 1970s. So we moved to Cornwall. How old is your son? He's six. How is he finding the 1970s? He loves it. Okay. When he's going to 13, he's going to be so angry. I was going to say, when do you foresee that, like... He will want, you know, Xboxes and, you know... Oh, he's not having Xboxes. Multicultural friends and stuff like that. Um, multicultural friends. He knows someone who's half Finnish. Okay. Um, well, he comes... He is actually the only Jewish child in West Cornwall. Uh, and we do go to... Sinbog. In the entirety of the... In West Cornwall, yes. Right. Not in the whole of Cornwall, but in West Cornwall, in that part, the Penworth Peninsula, at the okay. very end, I would say yes. Uh, but he can come and live with my sister okay. in London in holidays. And... Again, we talked a bit about rightly cliches. Do you do you sit overlooking the wild Atlantic breakers? Uh, no, I don't. Um, I can't afford those houses. Okay. And also, the wise in Cornwall don't live in the on the hills; they live in the valleys. I see. So as climate change happens, you know that may change. And actually, we have a river across from our house, and it scares the life out of me. No, I have. Uh, I write in bed. Okay. See, that's awful. No, do it's you come. Write in bed? I don't write in bed. But we this has come up on the show beforehand. Okay. With Anna Cadrerado, who has written in favour of writing in bed. I just, I just see what's the point if, you know you sit at a chair and table and there's it I don't know has and this is the final question because we're up against time but has um, being outside London 
filtered into your writing? Um, I think it has, and not necessarily in a brilliant way, okay. um, in that uh, the silence down there and the quietness, and there's definitely something going on in the air, with the air pressure down there because I feel th- tired so often. And is is I, there a scientific basis for this theory? Mm? Is there a scientific basis for this theory? Uh, I don't know. Okay. That's my testimony. Okay. And how, who are you that's, to argue that, with how your, I feel? That's your truth, Tanya. Um, and so it sometimes makes me soporific for months, so I have to come to London and inhale the... Smog. The pollution, the smog, the throbbing thrill of the underground and meet people like you, and then I feel alive again. I feel privileged. I think that's a great uh, great uh, point at which to stop. Thank you for being a super guest and for speaking um, so candidly about all sorts of things and wishing you all the very best with your journalism and your book. Thank you. Hello, it's us again. I'm taking the initiative in this exit this time. Um, we have a Go confession to make in that due to logistical reasons of me trans, uh, of me traveling, going on holiday shortly, um, <laughs> we are recording this approximately two minutes after we recorded our last uh, extra. So what have you been up to, Simon? Since then, I've just been, uh, I've been sitting. Uh, no, but you're going to, we're, we're going to grill you ruthlessly this time, Ellie. So what have you been doing? You said off air you went to see a play. <laughs> see blank at Donmar warehouse okay which i which is all about kind of women in difficult situations sounds up your street um a female drug whoa. addict okay whoa female whoa oh female i am often suffering uh but these women more than i one was a recovering drug addict one was unhappy and, uh, Did it have a heartwarming ending? No. Okay. Anyway, I would give it three stars. There was a very dodgy um, scene in the middle that was just too on the nose and just completely incredible. And um, I Do left. You tell? What uh, happened? Well, it was just you know when I'm all for kind of woke theatre, but it was trying to be way too woke in a way too like cringe. Like I wrote this in ten seconds way. It was just awful. It was okay. just I mean again I'm thinking that sounds like well up your street. <laughs> <laughs> what writing shit things and are we have I sworn on this podcast before? I mean you have now. Um Yeah, sorry, don't go and see this play is what I'm saying. This has been uh Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Akum. And me, Eleanor Alls. I'm laughing because you're doing a sort of weird eyebrow dance. Pull yourself together, Ellie. You're <laughs> fluttering your eyebrows like some sort of uh, hapless um sorry continue hapless is that an adjective you associate with me <laughs> I'm, I'm joking i'm devastated uh our producer is nicola keen um our our our, our graphic designer is by james edgar and our score is by jeff danheiser please do rate review and subscribe uh wherever you get your podcasts and you can follow the only way you can salvage this extra is with like pitch perfect social media promo now everything has to be right you can find us on Twitter at Take Notes Always or on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. It's all right, you've rescued it. <laughs> uh, we're also on Patreon at Always Take Notes if you'd like to contribute to our crowdfunding. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>